socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to episode 35 of You Don't Have to Yell. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here to help paint a picture of political policy for our post-pandemic world. I did that in one take, everybody. I am exceptionally proud of myself. Now, this is April, and typically we have a topic for the month. Now, my original intention for April was to cover taxes because April 15th is tax day. And that was entirely blown to bits, both by the fact that most of us are so consumed with homeschooling our children and checking our temperature every time we sneeze, and by the fact that tax day has been moved to July. Ironically enough, the very month the United States declared its independence in a protest over taxes. Fancy that. Still, the first guest for this month helped bridge the gap quite well. Molly Micklemore, professor of history at Washington and Lee University and author of Tax and Spend, The Welfare State, Tax Politics, and the Limits of American Liberalism, knows a whole lot about the history of America's tax policy and helped me get my head around what the past might tell us about our chances of paying our $2 trillion stimulus bill with revenue. More important than that, we finally find out what Donald Duck does for a living. Listen on and learn more. One question I have for you is like, you know, given you're saying like, so you're switching a lot of classes to Zoom. Do you see the education system as a whole kind of changing as a result of this? Or do you feel like we'll get back to whatever it was before? Yeah, I mean, that is one of the interesting questions, and it's something we've been talking about a lot here in both kind of formal and informal ways. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is this one of those paradigm shift moments um, Mm -hmm. where it does really kind of reveal weaknesses, but then also require a new way of thinking about things, um, a new way of talking about things? We've been coming at this, you know, in terms of our expectations of students, the meaning of grades, the best way to, you know... um, convey knowledge, to uh, engage students, uh, to incentivize them to perform. Um, And I do think it's having, it's, you know, I wouldn't want to say that there are any positive effects of of this, uh, but it is, I think, raising questions about uh, the nature of instruction, the nature of university instruction, but also the nature of of education um, writ large. Yeah, it's it's so it's funny. My my oldest just got back from school. His he had his spring break was ske- his spring break was scheduled for this time anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now they've shut down for the remainder of the year, and they're switching to online. And um, I was talking about it with my wife today. How in some respects the online learning is is great in the sense that you know when you look at the cost of of education on the whole, you know, a lot of that's facilities. So a lot of that's room and board um, to an extent, depending on where you teach, you know, a lot of it's in how much the the college itself or the university itself is like investing in like student centers and gyms and whatever else, you know? Um, and so in that respect, that might do something to address, I think the cost that everybody's kind of worried about. But the second part of that is there's, there is a, I think there's a value to being, to having the students all in one place and all together and exchanging ideas and being able to kind of take, get opinions that they might otherwise just be insulated from. And, uh, and I don't know, I mean, either way, the good news is I'm not, uh, I'm not the, I'm not the arbiter of what's going to happen with education as a result of this pandemic. So. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, my- I think it does, it raises a lot of really interesting questions about accessibility, about, Again, the kind of value of university education. Uh, mm-hmm. I do think that we need to be really careful about the kind of language that we're using in terms of this move to distance learning. This is mm-hmm. not like learning to teach online in two weeks because that's impossible, right? It's a skill. It's something yep. that people work on to develop. There are different pedagogies. There are different techniques. Uh, just like teaching in a classroom is a skill. Um, I don't know if you have any uh, younger kids that you've had to figure out how to homeschool oh, uh, yeah. in the last week. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that has also been a challenge. And both my husband and I are, you know, university professors. And we're just like, I have no idea how to do sort of six year old instruction. Um, yeah, 
I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether I need to write my kids' teachers a a thank you note or an apology. I don't or know a which. Check. Or a check, yeah. It, actually, better better yet. Yeah, we just, so I, I'm rounding out. This month was all education, uh, was what I was focused on the month of February. And I'm kind of rounding that out. And, you know, one of the last, the last episode that just came out yesterday was, there was a guy who uh, researched kind of what outperforming schools or what good school, what makes a school, you know, quote unquote, good. Um, in for Washington State, and so he looked at a whole wide variety of schools. And the thing he came, one of the big things he came away with is help train teachers to do their job better, and let them do their job. Mm-hmm. Those were kind of those were kind <laughs> of the, 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 go figure, right. um, because you know he he was he was saying you know he, the thing he said is he said um, teaching is you know he goes I I say teaching isn't like rocket science it's actually a lot harder because with rocket science you get you know you have a standard set of variables and with teaching it's just it's always different and you know and and my thought was yeah i'm like rocket scientists don't have a peanut gallery of parents and voters and other <laughs> right. vested interests telling and, them how to do things and six seven eight nine ten eleven year olds right who are again their 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 own special challenge oh god give me a break i mean i'm <laughs> so today i've got we've got a kindergartner we've got a seventh grader fourth grader third grader and then my son's home from college so and we're all in the house together Mm -hmm. and actually homeschooling is the second most difficult thing the first most difficult thing is getting us all to agree on what we're going to watch for movie night because we've been doing this every night as a way to kind of keep people sane and um and it takes us like it take it, it it takes us like a good 20 minutes to negotiate that. Yeah, we're mostly having trouble with keeping the fridge full. Um, I've got okay. four boys uh, between, oh, the, lucky ages, you. <laughs> four yeah, boys between the ages of um, seven and 21, uh, and they're all quite large. Um, oh. And so just enough, like keeping cereal and milk in stock, and obviously we're trying to limit the number of times we have to go out uh, yes. and go to the grocery store. But, you know, I didn't plan for this. I only have one fridge. I don't have an emergency refrigerator on the porch or anything like that. And so, Oh, yeah. We're trying to figure that out. Same here. So my oldest, I had cooked a bunch of spaghetti. We had spaghetti and meatballs. And I'm like, great. Okay, we're going to have leftovers. That's enough for, you know, we have the serving. It's enough for maybe three people to have lunch or, or whatever, you know, have dinner with it. So I go down for lunch and it's all gone. And I'm like, okay, who ate the spaghetti? And he goes, Johnny ate the spaghetti. And I'm like, that was like three servings. And so I'm trying to like institute this sort of wartime level of rationing mm-hmm. in the house that's... Yeah kind of working but yeah you and you and i are very much in the same boat here um so let me throw the big like i'm just gonna lob a big one at you um to start this off because like i said you know i don't think we'd be being honest to the moment if we just kind of talked about tax history and funding the government without taking into account everything that's going on so um is there is there a historical parallel for this situation in any form? I think in the way that it kind of came on us so quickly that it is unprecedented in significant ways. Um, and mm-hmm. I've seen people draw parallels to mobilization for World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, mobilization for World War II took like three years to get going. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, Roosevelt starts with lead lease in early 1941, ramps it up after the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, but even then, there was a lot of strong arming industry to get with the program uh, and mm-hmm. to get the, the country on a on a war footing. Um, and so I think I'm hard pressed to think of of a parallel situation to to where we are now and certainly not in my lifetime. Um, yeah. Having, I mean, it does, it's hard to, for me at least, uh, to remember that this has only been happening to me, to us, for a week, right? Yeah. Uh, the university, the university I work at just decided to go to distance learning last Friday night. Um, mm-hmm. And so the schools just closed last Friday. Uh, and it's either been a day or a year and a half in my mind since all of this happened. Um, mm-hmm. But I can't think of a time when things change so much so quickly. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I and I was trying to kind of boil this situation down into the most historically ambiguous terms or the most historically ambiguous description we can give it. And and I, I think some of these things are similar. So, you know, we have enormous amounts of debt and deficit spending right now. Uh, we arguably are going to have to spend a lot more to get out of this mess. And so in that respect, it's very similar to maybe where we were in World War II, right? Where we had uh, we had engaged in a in a heavy amount of uh, of debt or taken on a heavy amount of debt due to the New Deal, and then all of a sudden had to spend even more. Um, the the two things, the two kind of anomalies here is you know to your first point, we've never had to deal with such a sudden threat like this, something that just kind of jumps on. And number two, I think the most historically unique factor of this is that. The, the solvency of the United States does not seem to be a concern of the rest of the world at this point. It's right now the only asset that has held any sort of stability or even risen in the market has been the U.S. dollar. And those two, th- am, I ro- am I wrong there? Those, those, those two things are very unique to our history. Um, I'm not sure about the, the second point. I'll sort of take, yeah. take your word for that. I haven't been following sort of the markets that closely. Sure. Um, in terms of the sort of question of debts and deficits, I think that's about right. Uh, the mm-hmm. New Deal actually wasn't as expensive as a lot of people say that it was. It was certainly a break from pre-1933 practice because there was a lot more spending. Um, yeah. Franklin Roosevelt was, or at least he considered himself to be a kind of fiscal conservative. He really did think that you should try to pay for the things that you were that you were doing that you were spending on. Um, and yeah. so in 1937, he actually proposes a fairly disastrous drawback drawdown on spending that mm-hmm. uh, leads the U.S. into a recession um, in okay. that year. Um, and it's really World War II that expands the size of the state, expands um, the the level of of debt and and of deficit. Um, although you don't really begin to see the the kind of exponential increases that we're we're looking at today until the 1980s. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so uh, that's interesting. So if we kind of hone in on that era, then we hone in on sort of the New Deal, you know, the New Deal World War II era. You know, what did the tax structure look like that look like at that point? Uh, so. You know, we have the federal income tax, right, because of the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, um, which comes out of a kind of popular press for a more fair ter- tax system. Uh, in the late 19th century, most of the federal revenue was generated by tariffs, um, and a bunch of folks thought that tariffs were uh, sort of regressive. They put too much of a burden on producers and consumers. Um, and mm-hmm. so there was this move to... Uh, develop a tax system that would tax the rich, that would soak the rich a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. It expands during the World War I period um, to pay for mobilization there. Uh, it draws down a little bit in the 1920s during the Republican resurgence of the 1920s. Andrew Mellon um, doesn't make the tax code less progressive, really, or at least not in the rate structure. Um, they do introduce a bunch of exemptions and deductions that make the real tax rate uh, that folks are paying lower for for the wealthy, but the sort of appearance of progressivity stays in the tax rates. Mm-hmm. The 1930s are interesting um, because there's not a lot of income to tax, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There is a very progressive rate structure, uh, the wealth tax of 1935, right? Roosevelt proposes to go after what he calls the malefactors of great wealth. Um, there's a really high top marginal rate, you know, somewhere north of 90%. Um, but as it turns out, that applied to exactly one person, um, <laughs> right? John Rockefeller. Um, oh, okay, got it. Right. So it's not, um, you know, it's not bringing that much revenue in, and it's really more symbolic. Uh, the major change does happen during the Second World War, um, when Roosevelt, working with his Treasury Secretary and working with Congress, um, decides to transform the federal income tax from a class tax, that is to say one that's paid uh, only by the very wealthy, to a mass tax, um, that is to say one that's paid by most people, working class folks, middle class folks, and the wealthy. Uh, it's progressive, but it gets you know everybody in there. Uh, and I don't have the exact numbers in my head, uh, but you know it increases from some four million taxpayers in 1939 federal income taxpayers to about 45 million, I think, uh, in mm-hmm. 1945. So there is this extraordinary increase um, in the number of people paying income tax uh, because mm-hmm. of this Revenue Act of 1942. 
And so, you know, obviously only part of our spending was covered by, by that though, because right. we, we just had to take on, we, we effectively took on enormous amounts of debt to fund what was at the time an existential threat. Absolutely. Um, so I yeah. can't, again, the numbers, it's sort of like 40, 60, I think. Yeah. Uh, so 40% we paid in cash, right? That is to say through taxes uh, and about mm-hmm. 60% we put on the credit card. That is to say we financed through, through debt. Yeah. Um, it was also part of the kind of strategy of selling the war in some ways to the American people, both um, the the liberty bonds, right, that are floated to um, small investors so they could buy a piece of the war, uh, but also mm-hmm. the federal income tax system. There's this extraordinary public relations uh, effort launched by the Treasury Department uh, to convince regular Americans to pay their taxes to beat the axis. Um, so Irving Berlin wrote a song called I Pay My Income Tax Today. Walt Disney released two short films featuring Donald Duck. Uh, mm-hmm. In the first, he fills out his tax form for the first time, uh, claiming Huey, Dewey, and Louie as his dependents, <laughs> listing his... Um, I always ask my student what they think um, Donald Duck does for a living. Oh, you're going to tell me this. Uh, yes. he's. Um, well, they always say he's a <laughs> sailor because he wears that hat, uh, yeah. but he's actually lists himself as an actor which honestly, if you think about it, does make sense because that's, we know him from the movies. Um, so he lists his profession as an actor. He fills it out. Uh, in the second one, uh, he's being pulled between the sort of, you know, uh, good Scrooge McDuck on the one hand uh, and a kind of uh, someone who's tempting him to the dark side who reveals himself to have a Hitler mustache uh, in the middle of the, of the film. Uh, and so there was this, again, this sort of extraordinary effort to, uh, really yoke individuals and individual tax effort to this larger, um, as you said, existential crisis. Yeah. And now, so did that work or no? Yeah, right. There's actually very little tax resistance during the war. Um, and it's kind of extraordinary because we didn't have withholding uh, in 1942 and 1943. So people had to really voluntarily cut a check or send cash into um, mm-hmm. what was then the, the, uh, send it into the, the treasury department. Um, you know, I'm sure that there was grumbling, uh, but in general, it was a very smooth transition. Um, and the fact that it worked, uh, is, um, is testified to by the fact that Dwight Eisenhower, uh, signed a bill making that wartime tax system more or less permanent in 1954, right? Okay. So we have this war tax system that doesn't disappear when the war emergency disappears. Yeah. And so, cause, well, obviously we get to the, to, to the post-war period and now there are, there was a concerted effort to pay down that debt as well. And so did, was the tax code modified at all to address the issue of debt or was it just kind of kept, was, was the wartime tax structure kept and then they just allocated some of that to paying down the, paying down the debt? Uh, the wartime tax structure was modified a little bit in 1948. I believe 1948, the new Republican Congress, uh, Congress, um, the Republican Party got in control of Congress for two years between 1946 and 1948. Um, mm-hmm. They passed this tax cut uh, in 1948 that slashes um, tax rates. Uh, Harry Truman actually um, vetoed it three times. Um, and they had the they had the votes to override uh, because he thought it would, in fact, be fiscally irresponsible to cut taxes. Uh, yeah. He was what you might think of as a kind of high spending fiscal conservative, right? He wanted to fund all of these programs. He wanted to to build a fair deal, but he also thought that he had to pay for them up front. Um, and yeah. so he thought it was fiscally irresponsible to cut these taxes. Um, but okay. he didn't have the didn't have the votes to push that through. And a lot of what's sort of driving, I think, the the debts and deficits coming down in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s is the kind of extraordinary growth of the Mm -hmm. American economy, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can keep that rate structure the same or even lower it and actually bring more money into the treasury to pay down those things. At what point then in history did taxation become kind of like a dirty word? Or at what point did that become sort of a political football that gets us to where we are today? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and what I argue in in my book is that we've never had like a moment where people are making the argument that taxes are good, right? They mm-hmm. might be necessary, they might be a necessary evil, they might be something that we need now, but there's not really a sort of positive defense of taxes, um, except as a way maybe to get at the rich, right, in particular moments 
mm-hmm. so you have the populace in the late um, 19th century sort of arguing for a soak the rich tax. Um, yep. You've got, as I said, Roosevelt right in 35 talking about the malefactors of great wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not there. Uh, what does happen is in the 1970s, um, mm-hmm. the Republican Party, which had sort of been in the wilderness more or less since 1929, since the crash uh, of mm-hmm. 1929, uh, figures out the cunning taxes is popular. And it's popular both with their sort of constituencies in the business world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also with sort of white working class voters who are increasingly alienated from the Democratic Party because of the Democrats' embrace of civil rights uh, mm-hmm. and other sort of cultural things from the 1960s. And mm-hmm. so they can bring together this sort of unwieldy coalition uh, around this issue of tax cuts. Uh, so there's a guy named Jude Winiski who writes an article in... I want to say the public interest. He was a Wall Street Journal um, guy. He wrote a column uh, for the editorial page a lot, but this is not in the journal. I can't remember. I think it's the public interest. Anyways, he suggests that what the GOP needs to do is become what he calls the Santa Claus of tax cuts, right? So the Democratic Party kind of shores up its coalition by spending money. He says that the Republican Party needs to abandon kind of fiscal conservatives, conservatism needs to abandon being concerned about debt and deficit because it's Mm -hmm. not particularly popular with voters, right? So if the Democrats are going to give them stuff, Republicans need to give them different kinds of stuff in the forms of tax cuts. Uh, And so that's sort of a beginning, or at least I see a beginning uh, of this kind of abandonment of fiscal conservatism by um, the GOP in particular, uh, and a brace of kind of tax cut conservatives, right? Um, after 1980, the GOP never met a problem that couldn't be solved by a tax cut. Yeah, see, that's kind of like the, the way I've described it is, you know, I grew up in, in Dukakis era, Massachusetts. So we're kind of the land of the quote unquote tax and spend liberal. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like you know, I, the the only thing that I think makes that preferable to the current state of uh, the Republican Party is the fact that at least the tax and spend liberal figured out a way to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Republican side, it seems like debt at this point is is not a concern and is not something that uh, that that really really either side is interested in addressing. And it doesn't sound like it ever was either historically. Well, you do see these examples in the 1950s and 1960s. So there's this tax cut in 1964 that's sponsored. It's introduced by Kennedy. It's passed by Johnson. Uh, and it is, you know, sort of 20, 25% across the board tax cut, um, which you would think would be fairly popular, right? Because everybody mm-hmm. likes a tax cut. Uh, but there were conservatives in both the Democratic and the uh, Republican parties in 1964 that were opposed to this tax cut because it was fiscally irresponsible. Right, because we couldn't afford to do it. Uh, and so there is this really sort of major shift, I think, between that moment and then in the 1970s, uh, when tax cuts become the sort of political tool of choice. And it's not necessarily a policy tool, uh, although mm-hmm. there are some true believers, right? Yeah. Um, but it's a moment where um, that policy tool and that politics seem to align. And in some ways it sort of makes sense, right? So the other thing with the seventies is that all of the old things that, that used to work to manage the economy, to grow the economy, uh, to control inflation and unemployment, all of those things seem to stop working, right? Mm -hmm. So all of those tools, those fiscal policy tools uh, that people learn to use in the forties and fifties and sixties don't solve the stagflation crisis of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And so that then opens up this kind of political and intellectual space for people to try other things, right? Let's throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of where the kind of supply side idea fits in. Um, yeah. And that only gets traction because all the other stuff didn't seem to work. The sort of Keynesian consensus falls apart uh, at just the moment that Richard Nixon says, we're all Keynesians now. Uh, and that then opens up this room for kind of alternative theories of the case that like 10 years earlier would have seemed super kooky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one, one of the things, and and I don't know if this is a modern uh, or if this is a result of that or not, but it seems like at some point taxes moved from raising revenue to encouraging certain types of behavior or discouraging certain types of behavior. And is that something that you start to see come about during the Nixon era or is that earlier? That's a little bit earlier too, right? So there's this, you know, one of the reasons why the wartime tax 
um, the World War II tax system stayed in place uh, was that people in like the Council of Economic Advisors, which was created in 1948 as a result of the Employment Act, um, they think that they could use these fiscal policy tools to kind of manage economic growth. Right. Yeah. So it's not just kind of encouraging certain behaviors, although it certainly is for that. So the home mortgage uh, interest deduction, uh, even, um, you know, joint filing uh, mm-hmm. was seen as a way to encourage marriage in some ways. Okay. Um, so encouraging those kinds of behaviors, but also essentially managing macroeconomic growth. Um, so mm-hmm. managing things like price and cost inflation, managing things like uh, unemployment, to use these as economic management tools, as well as ways of, of, of raising revenue to pay for stuff that people want. I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you've been stuck indoors, this is helping you frame the situation we're in today. Or at least it's given you something to do now that you've burned through every episode of Tiger King. Now, one thing that's become clear to me as I've recorded the episodes for April addressing this pandemic is that it might sound cliche, the world as we know it has fundamentally changed. And more than ever, America needs a clear vision of what the post-pandemic world looks like if we're going to prevent something like this from happening again and grow through it. And to be frank, I don't think either major party has the answer. And that's why by speaking with historians, subject matter experts, and a slightly buzzed data monkey, I'm hoping we can figure out how America can pivot to adapt and be a strong force for good in the world. And to that end, I'm going to need your help. Now, right now, because you're probably not driving, go onto the device you're listening to this on and click share to share this podcast with your friends and network. And if there's anyone you feel would dig this, send it along to them directly. The more people in the conversation, the more we can be a voice for change. Now, second, the big Gino has gone and set me up with a YouTube channel. So swing by there and subscribe. The channel is You Don't Have to Yell. We're going to have every episode in there, as well as a few surprise pieces of content that we're going to start running in the next week or two. Now, lastly, swing by YDHTY.com for additional content, show notes, and write-ups to make you even smarter and more knowledgeable than you already are. And feel free to fill out the Contact Us form on the homepage and let me know what you're thinking. And with that out of the way, back to the show. Do you think, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about modern taxes is, you know, the income tax has sort of been our way to raise revenue and let's say equalize things, so to speak. So obviously you make more money, you are going to pay a greater share of, uh, of the expense. Um, but you know, what I've also seen is that they've figured out ways to work around it. So a great example is the fact that now executives are generally compensated in stock more than uh, they are in you know just raw salary. And so as a result, the tax structure is going to be a little more favorable when you're awarded you know, when you, if you hold on to it for a year, you're in the long-term capital gains territory, which is vastly less. And what I've started to wonder is if we need to kind of enter into a maybe another way of evaluating who pays and why. And and the closest thing I can think of is something based more on luxury consumption or something based more on how much you consume, how much you spend, rather than than how much you make. Has that ever been tried before? Is there a historical parallel to that or no? So if I remember correctly, and you'll have to check me on this, it was floated in the 1930s. And there certainly were luxury taxes in the 1930s. Um, You know, taxes on furs, for example, uh, were a big source of, um, not a big source of revenue, but they got a lot of play uh, in the press in the 1930s. This question of who pays, right, and kind of what is fairness and justice in the tax system is always... Um, central to discussions about how we design a sort of equitable, just, uh, and productive, right, and efficient uh, tax system. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of, you know, one of the things you brought up earlier, and I, I wanted to jump back to, was you mentioned in the late 19th century, there was sort of this populist movement to really soak the rich. And I'm going to ask you to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but if we look at kind of the latter half of the 19th century in the U.S., it's actually very similar to, in my mind, very similar to now, which is, 
you know, if you look, you have this huge technological disruption in the current case, it's sort of the information age, let's call it. Uh, back then, it was the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, in, it, it seems to have done a lot to make labor cheaper. So if you were one of the groups of people who happened to be an industrialist, or in this case, like a Zuckerberg or a Gates or something like that, you were going to do exceptionally well. Uh, if you were anybody else at the bottom of that pyramid, you were going to have a tougher time. And uh, and it seems to me that when I look at the distortions in wealth today and the distortions in wealth back then, they both seem very similar and seem to be for very similar reasons. And so I guess like when you when you look at maybe the way people reacted, the, the populist sentiment in the late 19th century, is that similar to what we're seeing now? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you're not alone in seeing this as kind of a second Gilded Age, right? Yeah. In which the disparity between those at the top and those not even at the bottom, but those in the middle um, mm-hmm. is sort of extraordinarily yawning. Um, the other thing to bear in mind, too, right, is that that concentration of economic power often translated in the late 19th century, as it does, I think, today, uh, mm-hmm. into power in the political arena, right? So mm-hmm. there is this marriage in some ways between the political interests of the economic elite and their economic interests. And mm-hmm. that's very much the same. Um, I think you're also really right that there are these kind of technological disruptions that do, in some ways, change the game. Um, and it takes then political responses to that shifting playing field. Um, so mm-hmm. in response to essentially the rise of industrial capitalism in the late 19th century, we get progressive era reforms, uh, which don't solve all problems, right? These are not leveling reforms, uh, but yeah. they do do things like regulate the railroads, create uh, the Federal Trade Commission, create the Food and Drug Administration, outlaw child labor, um, and really exploitative labor practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we haven't quite gotten that kind of political check to um, the transformations that have happened in the economy uh, since, you know, the late 1970s, 1980s. Does history tell us kind of where we get our taxes from is as important as how much we're taxing? What do you mean where we get our taxes from, like, like income it, or wealth or yeah, exactly. sales like, taxes? Exactly. Because obviously, like, in the beginning, it was mainly, like you said, tariff-driven. Um, that shifted more to an income or a more progressive form of taxation. Um, is, there, is there something that tells us that, the, that the, the source, that a certain source or a certain, you know, attacking a certain type of behavior is better than necessarily, uh, you know, influencing the rate, one, increasing the rate or decreasing the rate in one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting cross-national stuff um, in yeah. terms of, um, you know, where you're getting most of these taxes from. So Scandinavian countries, for example, which have very high rates of social welfare spending, uh, mm-hmm. also have relatively low rates of corporate taxation. Um, okay. And the sort of notion here is that you do some of the equalization on the spending side rather than the taxing side, right? Yeah. So rather than use the tax code to accomplish some amount of redistribution, you use spending um, to provide pensions, health outcomes, all of those sorts of things. Uh, And so, yeah, where you get revenue from is important, not only in how much revenue you can generate, but I think the forms of social solidarity that are formed by by those forms of taxation. Um, So Mm -hmm. Social Security, for example, is a really good example of why taxes matter, right? Because Social Security is funded through this payroll tax. Um, And even though we all know that the payroll taxes that you pay are not the payroll taxes that you're going to get back as a benefit when you retire, right? Retirement benefits are paid by current payroll taxers, right? Not by stuff you put in uh, like an annuity or something. Um, There is this sense, right, that I've earned these benefits. And so that's one of the reasons why Social Security is so secure, right? Because there is this sense of dessert, the sense of having earned this, the sense of ownership in that, uh, that you don't have necessarily with other forms of um, economic redistribution, uh, because there isn't that sense of deser- deservingness or, or um, you know, um, I paid for this. Yeah, yeah. So an example would be maybe yeah, an example would be maybe food stamps, for ex- for example, or chip or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's easier for folks to make cuts in that. 
because they feel like their money's going to somebody else and they're not necessarily 100% happy about that. So Absolutely. And we sort of see those folks that are dependent on SNAP or on CHIP or on TANF as not being taxpayers themselves, right? So yeah. they haven't contributed to the system. Um, and in part, that's because we've developed, and this is what I'm working on in my current project, and it's still in the idea stage. Uh, mm-hmm. But we've developed this idea that the only taxpayers that count rhetorically are income taxpayers, mm-hmm. right? Because to call poor folks not taxpayers is to ignore sales taxes, is to ignore payroll taxes, is to ignore imputed property taxes that are factored into their rent, right? Mm-hmm. We're all taxpayers. Uh, but there's this language that privileges income tax paying in deciding whose votes, whose voices, whose interests count, uh, and mm-hmm. whose don't. Well, and not to mention the fact that everybody gets some kind of welfare oh, sure. in some in some respect. I mean, if you own a home, you are automatically getting a tax benefit as a result of owning a home. If you own a business, you are benefiting from whatever subsidies and tax breaks are thrown your way. So everybody's getting a little help. Um, what I found, I, I used to do a lot of work with companies in Scandinavia, and it was interesting how non-burned they were about how much they were paying because I, I can't remember what the rate is, but I was talking to two folks who own their own businesses in Sweden and I, I'm going to potentially overquote, but there was something like, you know, just so I don't go over somewhere in the neighborhood of 60%, something mm-hmm. like that was what they were, was what they were paying. And, but they didn't have, they, they weren't, I mean, they were probably just as cheesed off about it as anybody would be. But I think the difference there is they also there there seems to be a, there seemed to be a different mindset there, which is the idea that they were kind of paying for society to function as it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, yeah, I, I mean, it's it, the Oliver Wendell Holmes thing, right? Uh, taxes are what we pay for a civilized society. Yeah, uh, which is etched into the edifice of the IRS building uh, in Washington D.C. Uh, yeah, but that is a sort of idea that we've we've often forgotten. Or that has been that has been undermined deliberately undermined. I think uh, as yeah. a strategy. Yeah, my wife and I call it the price of admission. Yeah, you know, we live in Massachusetts. It is an expensive state. However, I have a son who's diabetic, and I don't have to worry about him potentially being out of work in adulthood and not being able to get his medication because mm-hmm. we live in Massachusetts because right. we have this system. And so, yeah, you know what? I'll spend a little more on my Big Mac or I'll spend a little more on my flat screen TV or whatever. And in turn, I know nobody's kid is going to go without insulin, mm-hmm. you know, which yeah. is, I, I feel a fair trade-off. Do you feel like it was really the 1970s where this attack on sort of the social welfare aspect of government and the, and, 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 and the attack on, well, I should say that maybe the bilat or the, uh, the, the sort of two pronged attack on the social welfare element of government and taxation. Is that really when we started to chip away at the base there? Or did it happen before? Yeah. I mean, I think there's always been uh, a kind of, there have been folks that have mobilized against the taxing state and the welfare state, from the jump, right? So you mm-hmm. see businessmen mobilizing against social security in the 1930s. Uh, there's this group called the Committee for Constitutional Government that's trying to repeal the 16th Amendment throughout the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, mm-hmm. But it isn't really until the 1970s. Uh, as a result, in part to, I think, the real sort of seismic racial politics of yeah. the 1960s, right? Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, um, that this attack on the welfare state, right, in the name of taxpayers, right? So people who are attacking welfare, who are attacking food stamps, who are attacking uh, public housing, right, in the 1960s and 1970s are doing so um, in the name of taxpayers. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a clearly kind of racially coded politics, Mm. right? Taxpayers are implicitly in this, sort of political discourse white and tax eaters uh, or, uh, you know, sort of tax dependents are mm-hmm. implicitly non-white. Uh, and so it's a way of talking about racial politics without using um, those same kind of words, um, which at least on the national level in the 1970s and 1980s was no longer possible. I, I tell people this and nobody believes me except for historians <laughs> that, 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 
so much of American of the state of America today is slavery. So much is is a legacy of slavery, and uh, and every conversation I have always seems to lead back to that. Whether you're talking about the role of religion in politics, whether you're talking about uh, the role of uh, taxation in politics. Uh, whether you're talking about you know the, the 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 our legal system, it goes back from what we would call blatantly racist policies such as segregation to slightly coded ones, you know that we maybe saw with with Nixon and with the Southern strategy, um, and then now we're kind of back to like full blown, full throated, like I'm just going to come out and say it mode. It seems. Mm-hmm as evidenced by the the use of the term Chinese virus, uh, you know, which, which has been great. Yeah. Always fun. This is fascinating. So a lot of like the, so a lot of this, a lot of this taxation or a lot of the state we're in today then seems to be the result of like this, this, let's just call it like racial resentment for lack of a better word, or this, um, this feeling, mm, how do I put this? It, it comes from this feeling like there is a normal, hardworking segment of society that just so happens to be white mm-hmm. that's shouldering the load and a group of folks who just want to take from the system who happen to be black or brown and and therefore we should start to cut taxes as a way to get them out of our pockets. Is that kind of the idea or am I? Yeah. And you can actually see this. So there are a lot of these groups that form in the late 19th century um, in the South in particular, sort of redeemer groups uh, that fashion themselves as taxpayers organizations, right? Mm -hmm. So they're trying, the redeemers were essentially trying to undo reconstruction uh, and to reassert white supremacy um, in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, And so they do speak this language of taxpaying. You can see it in the 1950s and 1960s, um, where folks are joining not only the Ku Klux Klan, the White Citizens Councils, but also these taxpayers' organizations. Uh, I did some research on this um, for this project that I'm working on now, looking at letters written to uh, Justice Hugo Black, um, Mm -hmm. who was a you know, at Alabama, he had been a member of the KKK, uh, but as an associate justice of the Supreme Court, he, you know, comes down on the side of, of civil rights. And so there are all these very angry letters to him. Uh, and in the 1950s, uh, they're explicitly racial, right? Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of epithets. There's a lot of the N-word. There's a lot of um, just being very upfront about what it is that you're upset about. By the 1970s, there's a discussion um, or there's a switch in tone, and you still see some super racist stuff coming through. Um, but it's really like things like we paid to be in this neighborhood. These are usually around issues like busing. Uh, yeah. We paid to be in this neighborhood. We're paying high taxes. Um, we don't have any problem with black people moving to this neighborhood if they can pay to do it, right? So we're not racist. We're just taxpayers. But mm-hmm. the consequence is the same. And the impulse is the same, right, mm-hmm. to sort of cordon off these white spaces um, yeah. and to, uh, to appeal to, to that kind of sort of racial solidarity. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it's impossible, you know, whenever my, my students ask me the answer to something and I don't know, I'm like, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing it's either race or taxes or probably yeah. both. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's, you know, I think it's impossible to understand American history without, you know, thinking about, 1619, right? Without thinking about slavery, without thinking about reconstruction and its failure, Jim Crow, um, and the ways in which that really does continue to profoundly shape um, politics, society, culture, uh, in Mm -hmm. ways that we're maybe not even aware of most of the time. this past month was, was all education. And, you know, one of the big kind of weaknesses, and it's something that's, I think, pretty well known right now, is that uh, so much funding for schools, for example, is local. Was that tax structure designed um, with the idea of keeping dollars in the community, or more importantly, maybe keeping white dollars in white communities, um, as opposed to funding maybe the greater good for folks who might not be like you? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, right, um, public school or, or, or education funding has been raised through local property taxes that mm-hmm. 
traces back to the 19th century when we first get these public schools. Um, and I suspect that that was probably um, a response to sort of reinforcing community. And you don't actually get public schools in the South where the vast majority of African-Americans lived until much later, right? So mm -hmm. public schooling begins in the North well before it begins in the South. Mm -hmm. uh, and so indeed one of the sort of arguments raised against Brown um, in 1954 or 1956, where there's this Southern manifesto signed by like a hundred plus congressmen, um, is that there wasn't any public schooling in 1868 when the 14th amendment was ratified. Uh, and so it's nonsense to read a sort of anything about schooling into the constitution because it simply wasn't on anybody's mind. Yeah. Um, so my guess would be yes. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't know. Uh, yeah. I do know. So in the 1970s, there's this case called San Antonio v. Rodriguez. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've talked about that, but it's essentially this case that raises exactly this issue, which is not only are schools in majority minority um, districts underfunded, it's mm -hmm. that the tax system that pays for those is sort of fundamentally unfair. It doesn't provide equal protection under the 14th Amendment um, mm -hmm. because in order to raise you know, sufficient revenue to fund those schools, those under-resourced areas actually have to impose higher property tax rates, yeah. right? So to get a worse school, you have to pay higher property tax rates. And of mm -hmm. course, because of the way that racism works uh, and property markets work, um, mm -hmm. those homes in majority-minority districts are undervalued uh, relative to those in uh, majority-white districts. Yep. Um, yep. So you have sort of housing stocks that is racially undervalued. Um, and then you have those folks paying higher property tax rates to fund insufficient schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, San, uh, that was the kind of case raised in uh, San Antonio. And the court says basically no, right? It yeah. locks into place this local financing system and says that there is no real 14th Amendment equal protection problem with these systems. Got it. Got it. Has there ever been a locally funded system that has turned national in terms of funding sources or no? I don't think so. You mean in U.S. history or sort of across? Yeah, in, in U.S. history. I'm trying to see because one of the big problems that I saw coming out of the education month was just the way we fund schools. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, the only, and, and I don't know if there's an example like the highway system. Or or something like that, where what oh, was right. once a what was once a locally derived or locally funded, locally sourced initiative is now all of a sudden paid for with federal dollars. Is there is there an example of that? Not that I can made? think of. I mean, I know there have been experiments at the state level to try and equalize things among richer and poorer communities. So I feel like Vermont uh, experimented with with something like this. Mm -hmm. um, where they essentially redistribute tax dollars from wealthier localities to yeah. um, less sort of fiscally wealthy localities. Um, but in terms of shifting what was a local responsibility, I mean, you know, things like welfare, right, used to be the provenance of local or state authorities. And then in 1935, Social Security Act uh, creates um, AFDC or age dependent children. Um, and so that would be something that does kind of level up to the federal government. Um, I'm not sure it's a great model because it hasn't been super successful or super popular, um, yeah. but it is something that the federal government took over. I guess like if we get back to, you know, kind of how we started, which is we've got this enormous challenge. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's my belief. And I will say my uneducated belief that right now, as it stands, the U.S. dollar is kind of the the healthiest horse in the glue factory, in the sense. So there's no, there's really nowhere else to put your money, and global transactions depend on the dollar. So in in my mind, the appetite for U.S. debt is going to remain, um, but it's we're we're not going to be able to play that game forever. And so if I kind of if I kind of look at a at a path forward, eventually what we're going to have to see is some sort of if if we're going to look at a path forward and if taxes are going to play a part in funding that, it's really going to require a cultural change or a cultural change of opinion on what taxes mean and what taxes represent in folks' lives. Because if we look back to World War II, there was a, people certainly weren't happy about it, but at least they understood that their money was going somewhere good.
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think too, you know, I've been looking at a lot of these recovery packages that have been floated. And I think at this moment, anything that relies on a tax cut as a method of economic stimulus or economic stabilization just doesn't make that much sense, right? So giving people a payroll tax uh, cut, giving them some sort of, you know, uh, some sort of rebate based on last year's income doesn't make that much sense. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are certain crises in which you have to spend. Yeah. Right. Uh, And I would say that this is a crisis that can't be solved with, with a tax cut that you actually have to give people money. Um, Mm -hmm. in this particular crisis. Um, I think the problem with the sort of trajectory that we've been on since the 1970s is that we have, right, been really 1980s, um, is that debts and deficits have been going up, we clean them up every once in a while, Mm -hmm. uh, usually during democratic administrations, right? So you've got Clinton kind of cleaning things up um, in the 1990s, you've got Obama trying to clean things up um, in 2008, 2009 to clean up from the fiscal crisis or the financial crisis. Um, but that sort of trajectory, right, of crisis cleanup and no investments mm-hmm. um, and no kind of structural changes to address what had created those crises in the first place um, doesn't make much sense. So Donald Duck is an actor, which doesn't explain why he wears a sailor hat or why he doesn't wear pants. Now, the interesting thing about our discussion, other than that, was how American tax policy is as much an issue of effective marketing than it is anything else. And people willingly paid income taxes to fund World War II and willingly developed a knee-jerk reaction to income tax increases after income taxpayers were framed as the only people who contributed to the system, forgetting about things like sales tax, gas tax, payroll tax, excise tax, not to mention all those government services you end up paying for in the form of fees. Now, whatever it is, we're spending more than we take in and borrowing more than we can pay off, so maybe taxes need a new mascot. I nominate Gary Busey myself, but feel free to stop by ydhty.com and let me know who you'd like. We'll do a contest in which the winner will get a surprise gift that is so secret I don't even know what it is because I haven't thought of it yet, but it's probably going to be an impulse buy at CVS, just being honest. One last note, Molly, like myself, is trying to homeschool four children, but hers are all boys, so let's say a short prayer for her refrigerator and anything else that might be remotely breakable. Now, this week we found a historical parallel in World War II, and next week we're going to discuss a historical parallel that contains an actual plague. Louisa Woodville from George Mason University joins me to discuss the Black Death, how it impacted the economy and culture of Europe, and there's actually a lot of bright spots in there if you can overlook the part where a third of the population dies. Now, as always, swing by YDHTY.com for a full write-up of today's episode. Theme music, courtesy of Norway's finest Kvelertak. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina by the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next... This is Dan Sally, signing off.